You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Another shaky hotel slash Airbnb internet situation. Here we are for this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. I got to say I'm disappointed. Uh, we talked about this. I thought you were going to come back with a Mario accent. Where, where is it? Uh, it's still in progress. It's, okay. um, you know, I'm, I'm gaining. I'm getting all of my uh, my influences. I've been in a few different places in Italy now. I'm learning from my ancestral people. And uh, and soon, uh, maybe I'll bust it out for you. Yeah, I mean, the, it, the it came out a little bit when you talked about the food. And you, what was it called? You, prosciutto Pros- di Parma. Prosciutto di Parma. Prosciutto di Parma. There, there you go. That's... <laughs> Oh, I got tricked. I got bamboozled into saying it. Um, you know, yeah, uh, out eating uh, ballpark food last night. That was uh, incredible. And uh, I ended up dunking on Papa John's on Twitter for some reason. And uh, Mike Piazza was there. It's like a weird dream that I had last night. But it was uh, it was a real thing, broadcasting baseball in Italy. And then uh, the rain came, and we had a game suspended after the fifth. So we had to finish that up tomorrow. Kind of annoying. Uh, tonight I head over to uh, beautiful Nino Cavalli Stadium. In uh, actually leaving here in about an hour for day number two of the uh, 2019 baseball. Europe and Africa qualification event for the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. I've got uh, Israel and the uh, Netherlands squad tonight, which uh, looks like maybe the team to beat the Netherlands. They are really, really good. Um, Roger Bernardina, in case you were wondering, wonder what Roger Bernardina's up to these days. Uh, he's here. He's here in Italy playing with the Netherlands. So now you know. Yeah, I was going to say, what what because what you did in South Korea was age-capped. This right. does not seem like that. So Correct. What, what are the yeah. age groups you're dealing with here? So this is anybody, anybody and everybody. Um, this is – so for, for those who don't know, baseball and softball go back in the Olympics next year for 2020. By the way, welcome into the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Maughan. His name is Sam Dykstra. Um, if, you, if you just found us and this is episode 200 and whatever it is, you probably know our shtick already, uh, even if it's like your third episode in. We, we just kind of ramble for a while. Um, but, um, yeah, so baseball and softball go back in the Olympics uh, next year. They are not fully readmitted sports they're not um they haven't been voted back in by the international olympic committee each host city gets to select a certain group of sports to bring in for its games so tokyo obviously brought back baseball and softball um and uh there are qualification events starting with this one and going through next i believe march which will determine the five additional participants in addition to japan japan already has a slot as the host nation so it'll be five more teams uh that will be moved into the olympic games for 2020 uh the team that comes out of this round robin competition this weekend atop this group they are on to tokyo uh the second place finisher from this week will be on to a final global qualifier event coming up next march um but there is a, a big time tournament kind of a, a similar sort of tournament to uh, the, the World Baseball Classic uh, coming up in November called Premier 12, which is a 12-nation tournament um, that's going to be held in Mexico and Taiwan and Korea with the finals in Japan. Um, there will be a couple of qualifiers that come out of that. So 
There's a lot going on on the international baseball calendar, um, which I feel like leads us very well into this week's episode of the show. But yeah, so there are a whole bunch of guys uh, who you have heard of on the rosters for the teams that are competing in this Europe and Africa qualifier this week. And uh, the countries that are here are the Czech Republic, Italy, Israel, the Netherlands, and Spain out of Europe, and then South Africa, the qualifier uh, from the Africa Cup. Um, but there's a, a lot of dudes. Uh, Gavin Cicchini is here, former New York Mets first-round pick. Pat Venditti, uh, the ambidextrous uh, former Oakland Athletics pitcher, among others. Um, those two guys were just added to the Italy team uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, the Netherlands squad has a whole bunch of guys who uh, have played in the big leagues, have played in the minor leagues, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Czech Republic team, I did a game for them yesterday. Uh, Martin Cervenka, who is a member of the Baltimore Orioles system now, the catching prospect uh, from the Czech Republic. He is with that squad. Spain is here. They got a bunch of dudes from uh, the, the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and elsewhere. Uh, Israel is here. There are a lot of American-born players who are on that roster. Um, and who am I missing? I think I'm missing somebody. Oh, it's South Africa. South Africa last night started uh, a, a very um, interesting starting pitcher in that he is a guy who can keep a team like that in a short competition like this, and that's Dylan Unsworth, who uh, was with the Angels as of last year, 2018, uh, in AAA in Salt Lake. He made his climb up with the Mariners. He made it to Tacoma in 2017. Uh, but Dylan Unsworth got the start last night um, for, for South Africa, and that was a, a team that scored three runs in the bottom of the first. South Africa had a, an early lead over Italy. They were tied 4-4. Then the rains came. That game suspended. We'll resume it tomorrow. Um, but yeah, this is kind of one of those tournaments where you look at rosters and go, oh, I remember that guy. Oh, I remember that guy. Oh, that guy. I wonder what he's been doing. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, especially in this job. I mean, it'd be yeah, one thing for yeah. like major leaguers to be like, I maybe you've heard this guy get a uh, spring training non-roster invite or something like that or right. pop up or like you said with Gavin Cicchini, like a first round pick. Um, but for this is like the minor league version of let's remember some guys. So that's yeah, really yeah. It also breaks up any hope I ever had of playing for the Netherlands team, knowing that that roster is much more loaded than just, yeah. hey, let's bring over some Dutch Americans. You could play for the Irish team, I bet. They I didn't, could. They didn't make it here, but they were, I believe they were in the European Championships last week, which determined the five teams that moved on uh, to this qualifier. You could probably give that a shot. We could both probably give that a shot. I'm a quarter Irish. Yeah, we could figure out pitching coach, hitting coach, <laughs> bench coach, whatever. <laughs> I could coach first base on that. I could, I could do it. Um, yeah, and uh, despite what you may have read in that uh, that athletic story from earlier this year, uh, they're not they're not chasing after Mike Piazza with pitchforks and torches. He was he was at the game last night and seemed fine. Seemed very happy to to be around. I guess so, this is one of know. those times when like stick to your lane and his lane is baseball instead of soccer. Yeah, uh, that's that might true. help things. Yeah, had he shown up at a, a random soccer event, apparently that soccer team that he. Uh, had issues with uh, owning. Uh, that's the next town over, uh, Reggio Emilia. So that's uh, a short enough distance. Maybe he had like a mustache or something, and you know they didn't they didn't recognize him. I don't know. Talk, but, talk um, to Bobby Valentine and got a disguise. Maybe <laughs> yeah, exactly. He got the Marx Brothers disguise classes. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. It is the latest edition of the show before the show from MILB.com, and the first edition in uh, in the post 2019 minor league season world and. We have wrapped things up in the 2019 postseason. We got champions all across the board. The Sacramento Rivercats, congrats on a AAA national championship. Uh, Sam, postseason wrap-up, what are the biggest storylines to have come out of the minor league baseball postseason? Yeah, so just to kind of give this a tease in case you guys haven't seen uh, the 
episode description yet, we're going to get into our second segment with Kelsey Hennigan, who is at the AAA National Championship game in Memphis. We're going to cover that thoroughly with her. She was there. She has more info than either of us could provide. But yes, Sacramento won that game for nothing going away. We've also got an interview with Columbus Clippers outfielder and Indians prospect Daniel Johnson. Um, But just to run down through the individual league champions now that we're all complete. International League was Columbus. Pacific Coast League was obviously Sacramento. Eastern League was Trenton. Southern League was Jackson. Texas League was Amarillo. And Amarillo won on a grand slam by Taylor Trammell in the ninth inning. Talk about a guy who had kind of a rough season, got traded from the Reds to the Padres. Ends it on the absolute highest of notes. Uh, His home run was one of my favorite highlights of the year. If you saw it, he was celebrating going around first base. He basically danced into home plate. Uh, The swing itself was very sweet. Uh, big game out of him for Taylor Trammell and, and kind of a do or die situation. Visalia breaks its uh, championship drought in the, in the uh, California League. You'll hear us talk to Ben Hill later about championship droughts. Alec Thomas played the hero in that. Uh, the deciding game went to extra innings. He had a go-ahead double. Uh, Wilmington wins in the Carolina League. South Bend wins in the Mid- Midwest League. Lexington in the South Atlantic League. That's a repeat title for Lexington. Uh, not a lot of the same guys still around. Actually, those guys had moved up to Wilmington. Uh, so it's interesting to see at the lower levels, the Royals have been really successful in winning championships here the last couple of years. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, Brooklyn won its first outright championship. You've heard us talk to Matthew Allen about that last week. Hillsborough in the Northwest League uh, won its third title in seven years. If you want to talk about what kind of influence does that have going forward, um, obviously Hillsborough has done really well. Is the D-back system a really good one right now? Not necessarily. Um, So just because you win at the lower levels doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get uh, great talent going forward. But, hey, championships are better than no championships. Uh, Johnson City winning in the Appy League and Idaho Falls rounding out the Royals winnings this year uh, in the Pioneer League. The Royals actually won four titles if you include the DSL. Again, you know, Royals kind of in a time of rebuild right now. They'll take whatever success stories they can get. I know Wilmington was really a tough year for some of their top prospects there, Nick Prado, MJ Melendez, um, but they had really good pitching throughout. Daniel Lynch, Brady Singer started out the year there. Uh, Chris Bubich pitched some time in Wilmington. Uh, You know, this is a system that is definitely lower heavy right now, and, and to see them be this successful at those lower levels as teams. Uh, I talked to Brewer Hickman, who is a Royals prospect who had a really strong finish to the year. Uh, He's actually going to the Arizona Fall League as well, so that'll continue for him. Um, But he talked about how, you know, we know we're going to lose players as we go higher up the chain, but just to have this foundation of winning is a good start. And, you know, the Royals a couple years ago, we saw what happens when they have a foundation of winning. Uh, They carried that to the majors and, and won a World Series. Uh, is this the group to do that same thing? I don't think so. I don't think there's like an Alex Gordon here or a Salvador Perez. But uh, again, it's it's better than nothing. And if you develop that winning strategy, that winning attitude, it's a good place to start your career. And for these guys at Wilmington, some of whom won, you know, last year at Lexington, they, now they win their second years. That's a that's a very promising start. Um, but yeah, the, I'm going to be coming up with a kind of postseason performers story. Toolshed tomorrow. Taylor Trammell is going to feature in that, obviously. Uh, we don't have like win predict probability added in the minors, really, but I would imagine hitting a go ahead grand slam in the ninth inning would swing that very well in his way. Uh, Alec Thomas, uh, you know, we talked to him a, a couple weeks ago on the podcast and talked about how his 
2019 was kind of a breakout year for him. He wasn't a first-round pick, wasn't necessarily a top talent, even though people thought he was toolsy. Uh, to so to see him do that well for Visalia uh, was really really neat. So um, yeah, and you know again we'll get into the AAA national championship and what the, all that means and how the Giants were able to turn a Sacramento team the last couple of years that hasn't been successful into a AAA national champion with Kelsey. Uh, but yeah, stories left and right here coming out of the playoffs and and now they're complete and now. We're moving on to a completely different season. Strike two this week. We are uh, out of the minor league regular season and immediately diving into the Arizona Fall League. We talked about this uh, several times throughout the course of the year. We used to have a little bit of a break a couple of weeks, early October. Things would get rolling for the AFL. Right into the AFL the day after the close of the AAA season in 2019. Um, Sam, the the Arizona Fall League arriving. What are the biggest things to, to preview and to look out for this season? Yeah, so speaking of Toolshed, I, I did one uh, as a preview going into AFL opening day that that came on Wednesday, um, breaking down each of the six rosters in the AFL, breaking them down by organizations, you know, which five organizations are going to each team, where are the strengths for each team, what are some of the weaknesses, and what are you know, who are some prospects to follow that aren't top 100 names? Although I did sneak in Spencer Howard, uh, the Phillies prospect, because when I wrote the piece, he was not a top 100 prospect. MLB Pipeline updated their list this week, uh, moved a couple of guys up. Spencer Howard now moved into the top 100. He's now number 89. Um, but just to kind of give you some of the, the ones I'll be looking at in terms of strengths, uh, Salt River has tons of shortstops. Uh, and we already saw what that means a little bit because Royce Lewis in his first AFL game played third base. Um, there is some question in the community about whether Royce Lewis can be a shortstop going forward. Uh, I think the twins like the progress he has made there. They would love to stick him up the middle, but the AFL is kind of a time to try to, to uh, try new positions. Maybe he's a center fielder. Maybe he's a third baseman. Uh, I, I don't think he's quite the size of a third baseman. He's certainly athletic enough to stick up the middle, whether that's shortstop, second base, or, or center field. But hey, give him a look at third base. He only played four innings there during the regular season. See how that works out for him, at, at least right now. Um, but beyond him, Jose Devers, the Marlins prospect, is a shortstop on that Salt River team. He's really good defensively. Tr- tough to kind of move him off there. Uh, Fidel Brujan, has played shortstop in a pinch in the past. Uh, you know, he's probably more of a second baseman, but maybe he gets some shortstop looks as well. That's all River team trying to figure out who's going to be at the shortstop position every day. It's going to be really exciting because they are really good options. It is a good problem to have for sure. Um, in terms of Mesa, their outfield defense, I, you know, this isn't going to be showing up if you're necessarily going to be box score watching, but, uh, the the top prospect in the entire AFL is Joe Adele. He's on that Mesa roster. Uh, he played left field in his AFL debut the other night, but he's also going to be surrounded by really, really good defenders. Brandon Marsh being one of them, a fellow Angels prospect. He's really good. His arm is very good. He can profile in right field potentially. Derek Hill might be one of the best outfielders in terms of defensive ability in the entire minor leagues. He's played both center and right in the Tiger system. Uh, would love to see him get more exposure to center field just because he can cover such great ground with plus plus speed. And also another Tigers prospect, not ranked, but as is known for good defense is Jose Azucar. Now you try to put the ball anywhere on the grass. There's 
a good chance that a lot of that ground is going to be covered. I'm sure the pitching prospects for the Angels, A's, Cubs, Indians, and Tigers are going to be big fans of having those guys behind them. Uh, we'll see how it kind of works out. But Joe Adele playing left field, he's probably too athletic for that position. It, it, you would want him playing center or right, um, but given he plays in the Angels system and Mike Trout is still existing, I know he's injured right now, but is the center fielder going forward? Adele's going to have to find a spot in one of the two corners. Expect him to get a, a decent amount of time in left or right and allow somebody like Azakar or Hill uh, to fill in in center. That'll be really neat. Uh, with Peoria, the Mariners outfielders, Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez are both there. Rodriguez getting sent to the AFL is fascinating. I know he has some time to make up uh, you know, due to lost games because he went through an injury this year. Uh, but Rodriguez, this is his age 18 season. He was playing in the DSL last year, and they feel comfortable sending him there. Kelnick is finishing up his first full season, climbed three levels already. Could be an argument for, hey, we don't want to test him a fourth time. Mariners are saying, no, we, we trust these guys enough to throw them right into the fire. So go against some top quality arms. How can they do against that? I think Kelnick is more likely to succeed just because He's already had a taste of double A, and we kind of say the AFL is akin to double A, maybe somewhere between double A and triple A. Kelnick already getting that taste. Rodriguez has only played at high A, Modesto, but his skills are definitely good enough. He's got a little bit more power than Kelnick does. Kelnick has a little bit more speed. Uh, Mariners fans should be salivating about those guys potentially getting to play together. And one other one I want to point out real quick, Joey Bart the top Giants prospect uh, is getting sent to the, the fall league to end his first full season. He, you know, like some of these guys had to deal with some injuries this year. So he's making up for lost at bats. Uh, he did that quite well going deep twice in his first AFL game on Wednesday. But what I think is going to be most interesting is Joey Bart is considered right now to be a really, really good defensive catcher with, you know, a good bat thrown in, obviously homering twice doesn't happen by accident. Uh, but Joey Bart working with that Scottsdale staff. He'll be working with Blue Jays, Braves, Giants, Mets, and Phillies prospects. Spencer Howard, who I already mentioned being one of them. Uh, you know, when you are working with a really good defensive catcher and somebody who has experience calling games, he did that his junior year at Georgia Tech. That's going to help the entire staff. You know, obviously, the, it's not going to be a perfect situation. He's not going to be catching every game for the Scorpions. You know, they've got to get playing time to other catchers as well. There are two others, Patrick Mazika and Ali Sanchez, both of the Mets organization. But I think getting the chance to work with Bart is going to make that whole staff better for sure. Uh, it's going to make Bart a better catcher. You, you talk to catchers all the time about, hey, there are a lot of guys you have to work with in the fall league. There are a lot of. Uh, repertoires you have to learn and know how to use. It's only going to strengthen him there. It's only going to strengthen those catchers or those other pitchers rather. So just look out for that Scottsdale staff. And, and you know, we, when we're doing stories on them, I wouldn't be surprised to hear Bart's name come up several times of, hey, this guy was really good to work with and made me a better pitcher. Uh, just one thing to, to look out for. But it's the fall league. We're going to be talking about this a lot for the next about six weeks. Uh, it's already here. They've moved it up, so it started one day after the AAA National Championship. Uh, a lot of these guys are going to try to continue the momentum they built up at the end of the season because there is no break. Uh, and there's tons of storylines beyond the ones I've already listed here. And strike three, keeping on the AFL theme, uh, when we get to the end of it, when it's all said and done, who will be your Arizona Fall League most valuable player? Yeah, so I want to kind of run through just the most recent ones to talk about why I – I'm going to arrive at my picks. Uh, 
2010 was Dustin Ackley. 2011 was Nolan Arenado. 2012, Chris McGinnis. 2013, Chris Bryant. 2014, Greg Bird. And the next four are Adam Engel, Glaber Torres, Ronald Acuna, and Kesson Hira. Now, what you should take away from that is, as you can kind of hear from basically Chris Bryant on, maybe the exception being Engel, uh, these were really good prospects who were winning the Fall League. This isn't just, hey, Fall League MVP, rather. This isn't just, hey, here's a guy coming up and doing really well, and we'll give this award to that person. It's usually the really top talents, Hira being the one last year. We're seeing what he's capable of in the majors this year. Ronald Acuna ended his breakout year in the AFL, ended up winning MVP awards. Glaber Torres at the time was a top five overall prospect. Uh, he took away MVP. Chris Bryant was one of the best hitting prospects we've seen in the last decade. He continued that when he went to the Fall League. So it is top talents coming through here. It is also basically a hitter's league you're never going to really see a pitcher win this award um mostly because they are limited there are so many arms that need to get time it's hitters who take away here so looking at it through that lens and kind of fitting things into that rubric i think joe adele has to be mentioned as a candidate here um obviously he's the top prospect going into this he's he's number five overall right now um He's somebody who has to make up for time, so he he will get those at-bats. Uh, he only had 305 this year. He has a little bit of time at, at AAA Salt Lake, got in 27 games there. Didn't homer, although he did hit two, and they got taken away by rain, which was unfortunate, um, but struggled a little bit. So there is that fire to end the year on a higher note. There is the skill set for sure. He's got plus power. He's got a good above-average hit tool. He can certainly run and, and take his stolen bases and turn singles into doubles and doubles into triples and whatever. Um, so would not be surprised at all, given his experience, given his skill set, to see him really take off here. But one name I want to throw out there as kind of an aside, because you, at least there was a stretch there where it was a lot of corner infielders and just pure hitters. Uh, Seth Beer is headed to the Fall League this year. Uh, I know he struggled after his move from the Astros to the D-backs uh, with Double A Jackson. Turned it a little bit around in the postseason, but he hit 205 of the 615 OPS there at the end. This is his first full season. There is something to be said for fatigue for sure. Um, but Beer is somebody who is a pure hitter. That is his skill set. He's going to hit for average. He is going to hit for power. Uh, he just seems like somebody, and, and as a you know 23-year-old, as a college performer, has seen top arms before. This isn't going to be anything new to him. Um you know, just seems well set up for if he can kind of put those struggles in the past, carry forward his postseason performance for the Southern League champs. Uh, everything just seems to line up here really well for somebody who could end up hitting, you know, eight, ten home runs, let's say, during the fall league and end up with that MVP race or at the top that MVP race. Adele can do more things defensively and with speed, but in terms of just pure hitting, that seems to really work well in this MVP history uh, i think beer slots himself in really well there so adele and beer are my two favorites right now but we'll have to see how it shakes out i guess jared kelnick going jared kelnick i was thinking jared kelnick yeah that's he's he's, uh it's not like a a real risky pick like he's a total (laughs) stud who has been great everywhere but uh that's my pick going jared kelnick yeah no jared kelnick does a lot of the things that uh, you know, Joe Adele does. Certainly less power, um, but it is there and it is developing. And like I said when I was talking about him and Julio Rodriguez, the speed is certainly there. Um, so he, he has the ability to perform in multiple ways. And 
uh, yeah, every time we talk about Jerry Kelnick, I, I can hear Mets screaming on the other line, even though that's not how <laughs> podcasts work. So. so that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. Sam, tee up our interview for us that Kelsey got at the AAA National Championship game. Yeah, so the way this works is uh, Kelsey got an interview with Daniel Johnson. You'll hear that at the end of this. I actually caught up with Kelsey from the Memphis airport. She was on her way out. Um we talked about you know the game itself, the AAA National Championship, uh, what the Giants were doing in, to turn Sacramento into a winning team after some losing years there and, and a shift in terms of how they view player development and analytics and winning at the minor league level and how they marry all those concepts. Um, and then you'll hear at the end of that, that interview with Daniel Johnson, which happened before the game. So there's no like, hey, so you guys lost. What does that mean? Um, but yeah, this is all coming up in this package here in our second segment. And here it is on the show before the show. Calling in to us from the Memphis airport. Uh, I think she found a hallway, a quiet hallway. But if, if things go off in the background, that's what you guys know. It, it's actually putting you guys in the scene here from the AAA National Championship is our own MILB.com. It's Kelsey Henhagen. Kelsey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, there's a Justin Timberlake song that begins with Pharrell singing all the way from Memphis, Tennessee. And I really thought that you were going to play that for me, but I guess it wasn't in the budget. I think you're overrating how deep my knowledge goes of, what was that, mid-2000s music, maybe? Maybe. No, I think it was his first album, so it was probably like 2002. Okay. All right. So yeah, that yeah. especially doesn't help. Um, <laughs> we're, we're talking about Memphis, and we're not using a walking in Memphis uh reference here which i think is a major upset but anyway we'll get to why you are it came in up eventually yeah right <laughs> it had to contractually in the first minute um so you are in memphis to cover the triple a national championship game we are talking now on wednesday morning the game happened last night at tuesday uh between the sacramento river cats and the columbus clippers um spoiler alert sacramento sacramento won that game for nothing they become the first team ever uh, to win three national championship games in AAA. Uh, just take us through the, the story. The MVP of that game is Caleb Barragar. You got to be there and watch it uh, through the whole thing. Not the slugfest that we've become accustomed to in AAA this year. Uh, in fact, Columbus obviously didn't score any runs. But uh, what stood out to you about last night's game? Yeah, definitely the lack of home runs, or there was only one home run uh, by Peter Maris late in the game. That was definitely a big surprise. Everyone always has been talking this season about how AAA is using the Major League Baseballs, and that's led to a lot more home runs. You would have assumed there'd be a lot of offense, um, but instead, Caleb Bargar, as you said, the MVP for um, for Sacramento, he actually utilized the balls in his own way. Um, a few months ago, he did a spot start with Sacramento, coming up from San Jose, and it did not go well. And he realized that the balls did a lot of, or changed the movement of his curveballs and his sliders, and he realized he had to adapt. Um, so then fast forward to the end of the year, the end of Richmond season, he goes back to Arizona. He's hanging out with his girlfriend. He's been told his season's done. And then all of a sudden he gets told, nope, we need you uh, for Sacramento for the playoffs probably. So then the first thing he does is find a AAA or Major League Baseball and starts playing with the grip and starts throwing it uh, and just getting used to it again. So I really think that him being able to utilize the AAA baseball rather than just the hitters taking advantage of it really paid off. 
Yeah, and we, we should read out uh, Berger's line from last night. He pitched five innings, only gave up two hits and one walk, struck out five. Um, you know, looked incredibly effective in terms of hitting his spots as well. You talk about being able to throw the ball. He only needed 68 pitches uh, to get through those five innings, through 39 of them for strikes, uh, through a lot of first pitch strikes as well. Um, you know, talking to the guys after the game, I mean, what, what did it seem like this kind of meant for them, especially for Beauregard, a guy, like you said, only made one start for the Rivercats during the season. Now all of a sudden he's winning them a championship, not only at the PCL level, but at the entire AAA level. Um, you know, what, what is the atmosphere like after a game like this when it's, it's basically a glorified exhibition, but it still matters. It's still on national television. Uh, what was the scene like after the game? Oh, they uh, were still celebrating. There's still plenty of uh, beer showers and champagne baths. I did hear one coach say that he was getting tired of uh, beer showers, but then I think he was the one who was dumping it on other people throughout the game anyway. So I think they enjoy it. Uh, you know, it is a hard-fought win. It is the final game of the year. So at the very least, it's still pretty exciting for them to, like, take that, that breath that, like, hey, we did it, you know, because – you have to win to like win the last game of the year. You have to be champion. Uh, so it's pretty big deal for them. They get pretty excited. You know, they're still, they're all friends. You know, they've spent so much time together throughout the year. So just, I don't know, putting on your goggles and wearing your flip flops and just offering your friends with champagne sounds like a good time to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll take that over just getting on a plane and going home, uh, you know, into the long season. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about as well is being there for the game in Memphis. Um, you know, we got some questions about this on social media. Uh, the game every year is played in a neutral site, mostly for long-term planning. It becomes an industry event. It's much easier to get everybody into place knowing where the game's going to be. Um, but what was it like in terms of the atmosphere at AutoZone Park in Memphis? And how did they kind of come together to pull it off? Because it seemed like a very well-tended event. And uh, at least, you know, watching from television and watching from afar, it seemed like things went off really well. But what was the atmosphere like in the stadium? The fans were great. They're really into it. Um, I had tweeted about this, but with every ticket, they got a uh, powder blue Memphis hat and they got free nachos. And like, I think they had like pulled pork or like their barbecue nachos. They weren't just like chips and nacho cheese. Um, it was pretty nice. And they also got another free gift, which could have been like, I can't remember, like another hat or a water bottle or a mystery item or like a baseball or something. So like they really knew how to entice the fans to come out there. Um, the ballpark looks pretty full. There's a, like I said, there's a lot of powder blue hats out there. Um, I think Sam Mole got the loudest cheer. He had a big uh, section of family out there. I mean, usually at these type of events, the team or the fans just root for whatever league their team is. So in this case, the PCL. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Francisco Pena, the first baseman for Sacramento, he started the season in Memphis and he played there last year. So he also received a warm welcome. But the fans really get into it. I think that. You know, it's minor league baseball, it's triple-A baseball, so you're used to seeing new players most days and the turnover in the roster. So I think that these fans, they just cheer because they're, you know, enjoying baseball. They love it, and it's okay if they don't necessarily know the players as well as if it was their own team. Yeah, and I think one thing we can look forward to next year, not that we know the teams yet at all, uh, but next year's 
AAA National Championship will be hosted at Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas just opening up a new ballpark. That'll be their chance to kind of show that off. And as we've talked about in the past with Ben, big attendance gains there. It'll be really cool to see that event in that new place. Um, one other story I wanted to talk to you about real quick, Kelsey, was you had a sidebar um, before the game even started, and it looks good now especially, about how Sacramento – uh, you know, we talked about this is a franchise that has won three national championships now, but um, still not relatively new to the Giants. But, you know, affiliates changed a lot. The last couple of years as a Giants affiliate, Sacramento wasn't all that uh, successful, at least in terms of wins and losses. That changed this year, as well as the Giants front office. And Giants are going through a time of change tonight. Right now, Farhan Zaidi uh, becoming GM and a little bit more of an analytics-based approach. What can you tell us about how that had an effect on the, you know, the success of the River Cats in 2019? Yeah, you know, I mean, minor league baseball is kind of like college in the sense that there's so much turnover with players and personnel that it's hard to be consistently good. And if you're bad, it's okay. You're not going to have the same players next year. Um, but yeah, like you said, the River Cats hadn't been doing so well the past couple of years in terms of wins and losses and then this year they really turned it around um with Dave Brundage being the manager that whole time and he said that a big part of it is Zaidi creating these opportunities for players you know he had a lot more call-ups and gave a lot more opportunities to players than he had in the past um like I had a stat in that article about how I think seven, nine players made their major league debut for the Giants this year, and seven of them had been in the minors for five or more years, which, to be honest, I don't know how common that is for other teams. It sounds like a lot. I think it's pretty cool that all these players uh, who had been, you know, in the minors for so long and how a lot of people might consider them quad A players, the Giants are giving them a chance. They're giving them more opportunities. And a big part of that is how Brundage is making sure that, you know, everyone can be a utility man. He's, you know, everybody played more than one position this season on his team. And that's pretty exciting. And then the other thing, um, Courtney Hawkins, who has been in the minors since 2012, he was called up for this game from Class A Advanced San Jose. And this is his third organization. He said of all the three he's been on, this has the most analytics provided. You know, he gets staffed every single day. He gets them after every game, before every game. He gets new analytics every week. So he said that that type of information has really helped him. Um, you know, they still have the old school approach of playing with your heart. And, you know, that's something that Brendan's talked about a lot with how much heart this team had. But it's good that they can marriage or marry that heart and that, you know, work ethic with also these new analytics that are becoming so popular in baseball now. Yeah, and just thinking of a recent example, you know, you mentioned about guys who have been in, in the minors for a long time and the Giants allowing them to succeed, Mike Yastrzemski being one of them. There's a big mm -hmm. hullabaloo uh, during the AAA National Championship game that he was back in Boston, um, you know, son of Red Sox great Carl Yastrzemski, a longtime Baltimore Orioles farmhand, didn't work out there, goes to the Giants, starts the year at AAA Sacramento, and now I think his home run at Fenway was his 20th of the year in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, the Giants are trying to find these guys. That's how you kind of – one way to build a, do a rebuild is to through prospects and that kind of stuff, but it's also to find hidden gems. And, you know, time will tell. Courtney Hawkins hasn't been in the, that system for very long, and we'll see what happens to him in the offseason. But obviously they saw something in him that they liked, and they wanted to give him a chance here at AAA dead the year, so maybe something to follow this offseason. Um, before we let you go, Kelsey, we're going to lead this into an interview you did before the game. Um, from the other side, from the Columbus Clippers side. You got to talk to number 16, Indians prospect Daniel Johnson. Uh, what, what are people about to hear uh, about Johnson and, and his time with Columbus? Uh, Johnson's had a pretty crazy last uh, 12 months. You know, he was traded from the Nationals, and then he got to play in the Futures game this year in Cleveland at his uh, hopefully future home ballpark. And then he's been doing pretty well, especially in the playoffs. So he talked a lot about uh, his plus arms, plus speed, uh, his multiple nicknames. Uh, so it, it was a pretty fun interview. All right, so we'll move to that right now. This is Kelsey speaking to Daniel Johnson before this year's AAA National Championship. This is Kelsey Hennigan in Memphis at the AAA National Championship. I am here with Daniel Johnson. Uh, although I hear you go by DJ, what do you prefer? Uh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Whatever you want. Okay. You can make one up if you want to. I <laughs> make it up? Okay. Well, I was going to say, a DJ, where's number two? Are you a Derek Jeter fan? Uh, no, I just pick number two as a smallest jersey. Okay, <laughs> that works too. Uh, although I know on your Twitter you go by the Jets. Right, so right. Two has to do with your plus speed. Yeah, exactly. Is that uh, a Sandlot connection or just... Uh, no, I just made it my Instagram name one day and it kind of just... So I know uh, this is your first full season in the Indian system. Uh, how would you describe the year for you? Uh, it was good. No, it, was a, it wasn't a bad transition. I knew a few guys already here um, that I played with coming up with the Nationals. So coming here wasn't as bad. Uh, it was easy to talk to guys. Uh, it made it that much easier, really. Yeah, who in particular helped you out? I uh, knew Mark Mathias, um, Tristan McKenzie. Um, who else did I know? Um, Paulson, uh, Oscar Mercado, uh, New Greg. So it was uh, just a couple of those guys that I already knew that kind of showed me the ropes when I got here. Yeah, and I know you got to go to the Futures game in Cleveland. What was that experience like? It was, it was, it was unbelievable experience. It was, I mean, some of you had to talk, take in what you're up to there. Uh, it was to be in uh, Cleveland, you know, the hometown where you want to be at is. It's just lovely. You get all the support from the fans and everything like that, so it was, it was fun. Were you just like, I'm not leaving, this is my team yeah, now? I yeah, didn't, I didn't want to leave, but uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I had to, but it was, it was really fun. I bet, did that type of experience prepare you for the postseason or this big game? Um, yeah, I guess it's kind of like motivation, you know. Um, you obviously want to be there, it's the big picture, so, you know, coming back down to my leagues, you want to obviously do everything you can to get up there. Mm-hmm. And you're also known for your plus arm. Uh, when did you start to develop that? Um, I've always had a good arm, really. Um, just once I started to get a lot stronger, I started to get a lot better. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, how have you developed that? Is it just a strength um, thing? Yeah, just a strength thing. Just mm-hmm. in the weight room, we're getting stronger and just arm developed, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that your game has developed a lot over the this past year. And once you got promoted to AAA, you did even better. Um, how have you seen your game improve this year? Um, really just taking care of the little things, you know. Um, whether it was routes in the, in, in the outfield, uh, just first jumps in the outfield, uh, things like that, better base running, just, you know, just the little things to, to help elevate the, the, the meat and potatoes, you know, the hitting, fielding, things like that, so. 
Yeah. Uh, and then after you got promoted, how long until you started to notice the difference with the balls, with being major league balls? Um, I really didn't pay attention to it that much. I mean, the ball flew good for me in Akron, so when I came to Columbus, it was like the same thing, so I really didn't pay attention to it that much. Mm -hmm. Do you think that using these balls helps you prepare for the majors that you're already uh, I mean, I guess. I mean, the ball is the ball, though. I mean, if you, if you hit it, you hit it, so yeah. it doesn't really matter. That's true. You know, uh, like you said, like I said, you were traded in the offseason last year. How has that transition gone immediately and then since then? Um, it's just been going good, you know. Um, it's the same kind of thing, you know, go out here and play, so that's mm -hmm. about it. What have you noticed uh, about the Indian system as a whole? Um, just more analytical, really. Everything else is the same. That's about it compared to the Nationals. Now, you know, this offseason you will be Rule 5 eligible. Is that something that players ever think about, or is it just like a... Uh, yeah, I mean, you think about it sometimes, but I mean, you can't control any of that, so you just got to go with the flow and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I know you hit a big home run in the final game against Durham. Um, is there something special about hitting a postseason home run? Um, yeah, I mean, just playing in the postseason in general is, is, is a special feeling. So, you know, to hit that home run and put the team ahead, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was pretty good, pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so far, what have been your biggest takeaways from the past season? Um, really just trusting yourself, um, you know, slowing the game down, um, not trying to be too much, to be the player you can be mm. in yourself. Yeah, is that something you've always had or you've recently worked on? Um, I've always had it, but, you know, getting up here, you just play with guys who have a lot of experience, so, you know, you talk to them and they just really focus on being yourself or anything like that. Who in particular have you learned from? Um, nobody in particular, just talking to everybody as a whole. Well, we're continuing on kind of a postseason kick, which makes sense. We just finished the postseason. Uh, this week, in our next segment, as always, we have Ben Hill here with us. Ben, how are you doing? Doing well, Sam. How are you? I am good. I'm good. I'm sitting to your left. It feels weird for me to say that. You are to my right uh, here in a fairly big conference room, one of the bigger ones we have here. Yeah, yeah. We're so, surrounded by, by glass. Yeah. It, it, this always feels like the aquarium. Like people could just stare in at us. We should do one of those, like a live podcast from just a conference room with other people watching us. Yeah, we should. We should invite our biggest, uh, the podcast's biggest fans to come and watch a live uh, <laughs> podcast through glass. So it feel like one of those like surgeries that you see uh, students have to do where they have all their teachers watching them from above. That's what that would be. But we can plan that out. We have a long se off season ahead of us. Um, but the reason I want to talk to you about the playoffs is you have this story that's coming out on Thursday. So by the time everybody hears this story, we're already be up on MILB.com. But it's about playoff droughts. And you did this story a couple of years ago, but now you've needed to update it with the likes of Visalia winning and um, some other teams. Like we mentioned the Brooklyn Cyclones, um, you know, stuff like that. People, teams that have broken droughts. So what is this updated look at the longest droughts in minor league baseball? Look like? Yeah, well, you know, in 2015, I wrote a story um, – about the uh, the longest championship droughts uh, in all of minor league baseball, doing a league by league approach, um, meaning you know what what team in each league has gone the longest without winning a championship, and uh, the caveat was um, you have to you know played at the same level of play and in the same market to to qualify as a team. I'm not you know tracing franchises from one location to another. Um, but, you know, if a team has been in the same market, the same level of play, which team in each league has not won a, uh, a title in the longest period of time? I did this in 2015, and uh, earlier this week when I was thinking about what to write about, I thought, you know what, I should really revisit that story. We just had the season end, obviously, 
uh, AAA championship game was just you know yesterday as we're talking here on Wednesday, and I thought it'd be a kind of good uh, you know my first you know off-season article of the year, I thought it'd be good to kind of uh, stay on this theme. You know, usually, as you know, I don't write too much about on-field stuff, but uh, I do kind of like this element the most uh, when I do write about, you know, on-field stuff to tie it into a historical el- historical element and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it goes uh, league by league, starting AAA and then down to uh, Class A. Um, you know, full write-ups of uh, each of the 10 full-season leagues that have gone the longest, and, you know, a lot has changed since the last time I wrote it. And I also, um, last time I wrote it, and I wish someone had stopped me, I wish someone had complained, but um, if a team had won a co-championship, I'd counted that as winning a title. And this time I did not do that. So um, that changed some things as well. Uh, As with the last time I wrote the story in 2015, uh, the longest title drought in all of minor league baseball still belongs to Syracuse. You know, big, uh, big, fresh new year in Syracuse as they're now owned by the Mets, obviously a Mets affiliate. They're called the Mets. Uh, but that franchise going back to 1976 when they were a Yankees affiliate has uh, not won an uh, International League title. So that's the longest drought in all of minor league baseball. And uh, the second longest drought was two teams. Well, entering the season, it was two teams going back to 1978, uh, the Tennessee Smokies being one of those. They did win a co-championship in the Southern League in 2004, but they have not won outright uh, since 1978 when they were known as the Knoxville Sox, a uh, White Sox affiliate. And Harold Baines uh, was on that team. Uh, biggest name on that team. But another team that hadn't won at all since 1978 were, was Visalia. Uh, they were the Oaks then, and uh, they're the Rawhide now. But Visalia won this year, so they ended a 41-year, you know, 42-season you know, drought, whatever the case may be, uh, by winning it all in 2019, the first time since 1978. Uh, if you really follow this type of thing, you know that uh, Visalia's drought was tied into the curse of the alligator, which mm-hmm. is because when they won in 1978, uh, as the Oaks, uh, Joe Charbonneau, you know, uh, who went on to become a, uh, you know, Colt uh, Cleveland Indians icon, won the uh, 1980 American League Rookie of the Year and uh, didn't last too long after that. But Joe Charbonneau was on the 1978 Visalia Oaks, and he had a pet alligator named Chopper, who, you know, was kept in a tank in Joe Charbonneau's apartment, and Chopper. I think trying to escape uh, in the wake of this championship celebration, uh, tried to escape, slammed his head on the, on the in, in, within the cage or the uh, the tank in which he was being held, and uh, died. And it's always been said that the reason Visalia did not win a championship since that time was because Chopper the alligator put a curse on the team, as well he should have. I, it sounds like he wasn't being kept in the best conditions and. Uh, you know, it was a different era, but Joe Charbonneau probably shouldn't have had a pet alligator to begin with, but he was a free spirit. He was a wild man. So uh, in the California League now, we had Visalia, who hadn't won since 1978. They finally won, and now the California League uh, of the 10 full-season leagues is the one in, with the uh, shortest drought of any of the, the, the full-season leagues because it's um, Stockton uh, now has the longest drought in the league, and they last won in 2008, so not that long ago when no, you're talking no. about uh, championship droughts. Um, I do write about the short-season leagues in there, or at least list them, but the full write-ups are about the 10 full-season uh, minor leagues, uh, league-by-league look. And again, Syracuse, 1976, is number one. Uh, another one with a very long drought uh, is Charleston, who were a charter member of the South Atlantic League when it was formed in 1980, and uh, they've never won uh, from 1980 to 2019, which is... Uh, I don't know if you want to say impressive, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they've in the Rainbows era, in the Royals era, what in the River Dogs era, different affiliates, what have you, they have, uh, they've never won. And um, I'll throw one thing, more thing out there because I know, uh, you know some of our listeners might be kind of 
baseball nerds or minor league baseball nerds. And of course I use that term lovingly. And, uh, you know, my article is about, you know, teams in each league with the longest championship droughts. Another way to look at this, and I just did not have the time to research is what are the longest championship droughts for the affiliate of each major league club, Mm. you know, so in triple a, when, what, of the 30 organizations has the longest drought since their triple a affiliate won a title. That's another way to look at this would take a lot of work. I was going to say that might be a tool shed for the off season and, and figuring out like which historically far, which farm systems are best at winning. Right. And what does that actually mean? I mean, we talk about that all the time in terms of player development. Do you, you know, emphasize more individual stuff Do you, uh, emphasize team success and trying to win it each game and all that kind of stuff. So that that would be an interesting look. Um, if anybody has thoughts on this or or has already done the research, tweet at us at Ben's Biz at Sam Dykstra MILB whatever. Um, that would be a fascinating look, or we'll file it away and maybe it's something we'll talk again about down the line. Um, in terms of these individual teams, I mean we've talked about the past. What do playoffs mean for? the actual franchises, the Reading, Fighting Phils, the Syracuse Mets, what have you. Um, it just means a couple extra games at the end of the season. I know Visalia at one point was selling Curse of the, the Alligator shirts or something, or they were doing promos. To, is there any tie-in that these teams can do with this, or have you seen any other examples of that in the past? Yeah, I think Visalia is the only one I've seen that really has sort of marketed their title drought uh, through the Curse of the Alligator. The first time I visited Visalia, which I believe is in 2013, was the first time I learned about that, and they they were selling, uh, you know, reverse the curse T-shirts, and they had a. I remember they like blow up alligators like at, you know on the concourse and at the ballpark, and uh, they're the only team I can think of that really, you know, made it a marketable thing. How long their drought has been? I mean, I understand it's, you know, in minor league baseball, when you know from a front office perspective, winning is definitely not everything. Um, I don't think you know the teams involved stay up at night not having won a championship or anything like that. It's a whole different dynamic. But I do think it would be something that be kind of could be kind of fun for Syracuse or Charleston, who has a kind of that irreverent spirit, mm. to come up with, you know, make up their own curse that tries to explain why they did not win, or you know, try to create some campaign based around uh, you know breaking the spell, no matter what that might be. Some positive mojo the fans can can add. Uh, I think you know you can have fun with this the same way Visalia had fun with. You know, dead alligator cursing their team. I do think, from a marketing perspective, instead of looking at this as a negative, look at this as like a fun way to drum up interest. And uh, you know, if the team is doing well, to get the fans that much more excited about you know winning, because it's not just winning for this year; it's you know winning for the first time in decades and decades, or maybe you know if you're Charleston for the first time ever. And we know a bu- bunch of teams are going on retreats and and having planning sessions very quickly here coming up. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but. Yeah, I, I feel like that's something that you, if your team is on here, take advantage of something. Like find a way to, to work this into your promo schedule for next year and have some fun with it, especially the teams from maybe like 1990 and earlier. Um, that, that's a long time, and you know, minor league winning can seem like random variance at times, but to, to go that long, uh, take advantage however you can, I guess. Uh, circling back to a story we talked a little bit about last week in terms of the bump in minor league attendance, um, you dug a little bit deeper into finding out why it climbed uh, above 41.5 million people this year coming through the gates. Uh, what were you able to find? I know a lot of it tied into new stadiums. Yeah, well, you know, the, the press release came out and, you know, the word got out on Twitter and, you know, minor league baseball attendance went up 2.6% this, uh, this season and an increase of uh, over a million total. 
uh, to 41,504,077 uh, as 2019's total over uh, 176 teams in 15 leagues. That's the 14 affiliated minor leagues as well as uh, the unaffiliated Mexican League, which is a 16-team circuit and considered to be you know, at the AAA level, even though it's not affiliated. Uh, so it's a, it was an overall gain of uh, a little bit over a million fans. And you know, I was looking at the numbers, and 800-some um, thousand uh, of that gain can be attributed to just five you know, affiliated minor league clubs. And those are, perhaps not surprisingly, you know, A, the, the three uh, teams with new ballparks this year, you know, led by the Las Vegas Aviators, who uh, drew over 300,000 more fans uh, at their new Las Vegas ballpark than they did the previous season while playing as the 51s at Cashman Field. So, I mean, that's a massive game. They basically doubled their attendance. They basically doubled their attendance. And, you know, when the entire industry, 176 teams, uh, went up by a little over a million, one team went up by over 300,000, so that's massive. Um, uh, also, Amarillo. Um, if you look at you know Amarillo, who were they in terms of trying to – it was a new stadium, obviously, and a new team, but you have to say what did they gain from who they were the year before. Last year they were the AA San Antonio Missions uh, in the Texas League, and then the Missions you know, moved to Amarillo to become the Sod Poodles, while in a corresponding move, um, AAA Colorado Springs moved to San Antonio. So Amarillo drew 427,791. That's over 100,000 more, uh, just about 100,000 more uh, than they did when they were the AA missions the year before. So that's a gain of 100,000. Um, Fayetteville Woodpeckers, the other new ballpark, they uh, drew 246,961. And the year before, you know, they were the Bowie's Creek Astros, you know, very much a stopgap entity uh, playing on the college campus of, at Campbell University at Jim Perry Stadium. Uh, they only drew the Bowie's Creek Astro, Astros in 2018 uh, drew a you know, almost comically low 24,000 for the season. Um, that was just a kind of a situation where the, the the college was essentially hosting them and basically just threw open the gates and, and you know a couple right. hundred people would come in for each game. Uh, it wasn't really a money making enterprise. But if you look at Fayetteville Woodpeckers at uh, Segra Stadium drawing 246,961, that's over 200,000 more than the franchise had drawn in Bowie's Creek. So that's another uh, huge gain. That's a tenfold gain. Yeah, that's okay. a, a tenfold. Yeah, so when you're talking about who drew the most, what franchise drew the most uh, uh, percentage-wise percentage increase, yeah. increase uh, Bowie's Creek 24,068 to Fayetteville 246,961. Then you have uh, not new ballparks, but you know the Colorado Springs Sky Sox relocated to San Antonio, and the missions became a triple-A team instead of a double-A team. And the AAA San Antonio Missions drew more than the Sky Sox had the year before. I know this kind of gets confusing, but when you're looking at the same franchise, uh, so that accounted for uh, another hundred some thousand in, in a gain in gains there. Oh, Seventy-four thousand. Seventy-four thousand. San Antonio uh, Missions at the AAA level drew three hundred thirty-seven thousand four hundred eighty-four, and uh, last year uh, the Colorado Springs Sky Sox who became the missions drew 262,657. So that's a gain of 74,000. And then finally, the Sky Sox um, obviously went to San Antonio. But meanwhile, the Helena Brewers became the Rocky Mountain Vibes and played in Colorado Springs. Rocky Mountain Vibes drew 137,294 in the Pioneer League, really good attendance for the Pioneer League, uh, rookie advanced level. And Helena the year before, the franchise um, 
you know, the previous iteration of the franchise drew just 31,000. So that was a gain of uh, 106,000, a little more, more than that. So these five teams that were in three new ballparks and then two others that, uh, that relocated to a pre-existing ballpark but were in a different league uh, were responsible for 800-some thousand uh, of the overall gain, not just five teams. And uh, so, you know, that goes a long way toward the gain. And also we mentioned the Mexican League, and the Mexican League, I don't know their exact numbers, but they had the biggest uh, league-wide gain uh, year over year. So that was another big factor in the attendance uh, was the Mexican League going up 22% as a league. So when you look at the Mexican League gains plus the gains by uh, new ballparks and or relocating teams, um, I mean, that really tells a story right there. Mm. Um, it's a big part of the story. Mm. And we talked last week about new ballparks opening next year. But one thing I, I want to kind of tackle here real quick is one that w- was interesting to me that you noted in the story and you talked about a little bit there was going from San Antonio to Amarillo uh, and there being a gain of 100,000. Now, Amarillo is not as big a city as San Antonio. San yeah. Antonio is now a triple-A city yeah. and a major sports market, as we know, the Spurs play there. Um, so is this 427 mark, do you feel like that's sustainable for Amarillo? How much of this is, this is a brand new market bringing a good team, you know, a good league, uh, and first year shock of like, Hey, well, let's check out the new place when it's no longer new. How sustainable is this? I mean, I think you always see a honeymoon, not always, but usually see a honeymoon period, uh, with new ballparks where, you know, there might be a dip the next season, you know, once the the novelty has worn off a little bit, but these are new ballparks uh, still and uh, generated great fan enthusiasm still. So while there might be slight dips in these places, um, I don't see it. Um, I personally would think it's probably going to be pretty negligible. You don't see the bottom drop out in a second year, but it definitely becomes a, um, you know, a challenge for teams, uh, you know, to keep up the energy from in year one into year two. But I think we've seen, you know, teams do that pretty well. Um, you know, the Hartford Yard Goats are doing just as well in year three at Dunkin' Donuts Park, you know, as they did in, in year one, for example. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't think we'll see big drop-offs in that regard. And uh, in terms of new ballparks being, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest generator for attendance growth, uh, we do have, you know, four new ballparks scheduled to open in 2020. And uh, I think that could once again, um, you know, set the whole industry up for another gain uh, just with the gains that you might see in, you know, Fredericksburg as opposed to Potomac, uh, Wichita as opposed to New Orleans, uh, Kannapolis, uh, staying in Kannapolis but in a new park there. I mean, I'm sure you'll see some some big gains there. And then uh, Mobile relocating to Madison, Alabama and becoming the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Um, I'll probably write a similar story next year <laughs> about that kind of stuff. But I'd say those four franchises either, you know, all going to new ballparks, uh, three of them relocating, um, you know, will, will almost certainly be responsible for at least six, seven, eight hundred thousand in, in overall gains next year. Hmm. All right, Ben. Well, I would say we'll see you next week, but we'll talk to you next week for sure. Mm-hmm. You're going to the Minor League Baseball Innovators Summit, uh, which used to be called the Promo Seminar. Now it's called the Innovators Summit, which is a cool name, in El Paso, Texas. That's being held from the 23rd to the, through the 26th at the El Paso Convention and Performing Arts Center. Uh, what are you looking forward to about this event this year? What are you kind of expecting to be some of the chatter to hear next week? Yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, always been described as an idea-sharing event, and its timing is no coincidence. I mean, we just had the minor league season end, obviously. So, you know, basically the first full week after the season definitively ends via the uh, 
AAA championship game, we have the promo seminar, which is now the Innovator Summit. So it is uh, this year, as always, a chance for people while the season is still fresh on their minds and while they haven't yet started the planning for the next season, or they may have informally, but uh, it's a chance to you know share ideas and pick up ideas and do things that you then, you then go home uh, at the summit and uh, you know implement them for next year, next season. So this is something I've attended uh, almost every year for over a decade now. Uh, the rebranding, you know, from the promo seminar to the Innovator Summit, uh, you know, they changed some of the structure around a little bit, uh, giving it a different look, but it's still fundamentally the same event. Uh, but the reason it's in El Paso in this year of rebranding the event is because the minor league baseball promo seminar, its roots go back to El Paso. Uh, there was an, an executive uh, general manager of the El Paso Diablos, uh, you know, back, you know, 30, 35 almost 40 years ago now, uh, who, Jim Paul, uh, who started what became the promo seminar just by, you know, inviting, you know, friends in the industry to El Paso after the season so they could have kind of, I think what started off as a, you know, more informal bull session of like, hey man, the season just <laughs> ended, let's, uh, let's talk about it, let's share ideas. And then that idea grew and grew until minor league baseball proper took it over and turned it into this, you know, very sleek, multifaceted, you know, almost week-long event that we, that we see today. So in bringing it back to El Paso here for the 2019 um, season in the, in, the, in the rebranding year, it's kind of saying, well, El Paso is where this has started, and now El Paso will be where we, you know, look to the future as well with this uh, rebranding. And, um, you know, I've said this many times, but, uh, you know, I, I, I really like the city of El Paso. I've had the chance to visit twice, including earlier this season. Um, I really like the energy there and uh, the El Paso Chihuahuas, Southwest University Field is one of my favorite AAA parks. So personally, I'm glad it's in El Paso just because I think that's going to be a fun city to be in and uh, just looking forward to being back in the ballpark and uh, just hanging out down there and it'll be a busy time. Um, you know, I, I'm one of the presenters, you know, at the, at the summit. So, uh, you know, I'll be doing a kind of really prepare for that, but, uh, you know, kind of uh, highlights of my season travels and uh, I'll be doing some coverage from the event as well. And, uh, you know, involved in some, you know, smaller group uh, breakout sessions and who knows what else. So uh, it'll be a good time down there, but very busy. And even talking about it right now, it's giving me a little anxiety because I'm just thinking about how you know generally unprepared I am. But that's life, really. It's just yeah. the way it goes. It's all right. It's still a week away. You still have a little bit of time, but uh, I am excited to hear what those breakout sessions come up with, what kind of ideas sound like they worked in 2019, or, yeah, 2019, and what new ideas come up for 2020. So, uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing back from you from El Paso next week, and we'll talk to you then, Ben. Yeah, sounds good. We'll be talk I'll be talking from the Mountain Time Zone, which is the most overlooked and neglected time zone in the American landscape. So uh, let's have some in more respect. US. In the continental U.S., yes, thank you. Uh, but I just like to say that the Mountain Time Zone deserves more respect. And when you talk to me from the Mountain Time Zone next week, um, you know we'll have a chance to talk about the beauty of the Mountain Time Zone and what it's like to be either two hours ahead or two hours behind, or maybe just where you need to be. It is 5:30 in the evening here. Uh, I gotta get on a bus in 45 minutes to go broadcast a baseball game. It's like the middle of the day there. What, what are you What are you doing for lunch? <laughs> I actually have an Italian sandwich. Ah, uh, I did not plan tribute. <laughs> yeah, it might be offensive. I don't know. I don't. It might be an Italian American sandwich for all I know. Okay, it, right. it's got makes you know sense. like salami and uh, yeah uh, and ham on it. I don't know what makes it Italian other than it's just got various meats and cheeses. 
but right. yes, well, it's already in the fridge. It's not going to be good. nearly as good as whatever you're having for dinner. I'll say that. Yeah, much. it's been. Uh, there's like a ballpark chef here that that prepares the meals for us. It's ridiculous. I've never never seen anything like it. It's. Uh, well, me- I'm I'm not going to complain, but I will be posting more pictures on uh, on <laughs> social media about it to make you all jealous. Sorry. Fair enough. But here <laughs> in in New York, they have the Feast of San Gennaro. That's been happening the last right. week or so. Do right. they have that in actual Italy proper? Um, I don't. I I believe so. I don't think it's the same time of year. Weird. I don't. You know. would Maybe think I that would be a. You would think it a, would be right around the feast day. Right. But for some reason, I feel like I read somewhere that it's June here. Maybe that's a different feast. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making it all up. It's Italy. But they're feasting all the time. Yeah. That's true. It is a constant feast. It is a twenty-four hour a day, seven day a week feast, and I am very much here for it. <laughs> All right, this is turning into our food podcast very quickly <laughs> oh man he's sam i'm tyler we'll talk to you next week hey rob bradford here you guys know i'm always up for a good mvp story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazons of the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.